Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Jesus and Jonah, the economy and geography of God's grace. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 18th, 2011. In the world of startup companies, employees who are hired first reap the greatest profits, often in the form of stock options that skyrocket in value when the company goes public. On the other hand, people hired last earn much less. And when it comes to hiring and firing, we're familiar with the Darwinian law of the corporate jungle, last in, first out. This business model spelled good news for Mark McDonald. Mark McDonald was hired as Microsoft's first salaried employee way back in 1976. He wore badge number 00001. He left the company in 1984 because he said Microsoft had gotten quote-unquote too big. At the time, Microsoft employed 400 people. Today it employs about 135,000 people in 139 countries. Mark McDonald will be forever famous as Microsoft's first employee. It's so in the ways of the world, the first are first, and the last are last. In the kingdom of God, things are different, much different. In the Gospel this week from Matthew 20, Jesus tells a story about a business owner who had his own crazy ideas about the perfect payday. The punchline of the story shocked his listeners with a radical reversal that subverted conventional wisdom. And just to make his point clear, Jesus repeats the punchline verbatim three successive times. In God's kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. The parable of the workers in the vineyard is preceded by a story about a rich young man. When Jesus invited the man to sell his possessions and give his money to the poor, we read, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Peter then responded, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? The rich man kept all that he had. The disciples left all that they had. Jesus assured them, at the renewal of all things, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Matthew 19.30 Jesus then tells the parable of the workers in the vineyard to elucidate his point. A foreman hired laborers early in the morning for one denarius a day, then more employees successfully throughout the day at the third, sixth, ninth, and eleventh hours. A twelve-hour day of manual labor, as Matthew 20, verse 12 puts it, with the burden of the work and the heat of the day is a long day. That evening, the foreman paid the workers, but he did so in an unusual way. We read in Matthew 21.8, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. 
Whereas the first workers hired had endured the burden of the work in the heat of the day for 12 hours, the workers hired at the 11th hour worked just one hour. In fact, the gospel story says they had, quote, stood here all day long doing nothing, 20 verse 6. Nonetheless, he paid those who had worked a meager one hour the same as those who had worked 12 hours. They received 12 hours of pay for one hour of work. Imagine if Microsoft hired you today as employee number 135,001, and then after the interview informed you that your salary would be the same as Mark McDonald's, even though you were hired 30 years later and had done nothing at all. You would be thrilled at this compensation package, but Mark McDonald wouldn't be. The shareholders wouldn't be happy either. There would definitely be a lawsuit. Nor were the laborers who had worked 12 hours at all happy. They rightly thought that they would make more than the lazy people who stood around all day doing nothing and then worked one measly hour. The parable says that they, quote-unquote, they grumbled against the landowner. Of course they grumbled. Why not? But the ways of God are different than the laws of business. And so for the third time, Jesus says in 2016, the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus isn't talking about labor laws, unemployment benefits, or the minimum wage. Although if he lived today, I think he might have some sacred satire about executive compensation. Rather, he's contrasting a wildly generous God with a life based upon merit. If you're Lutheran, you could say this is a contrast of divine grace and human works. Specifically, Jesus is speaking about the end of history and about the character of God. At the end of history, in what Jesus calls the renewal of all things, our human hopes for justice will be fulfilled. There will be reversals. The rich man who kept everything will lose everything he thought he had. The disciples who gave up everything will gain everything. Matthew writes in 1929, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Although parables often elucidate spiritual truths and do so with deliberate exaggeration, here I think Jesus is making a very literal point. At the end of history, justice will prevail and roles will reverse. Jesus is also speaking about the character of God. He's a God who pays workers a full day's wage for one hour of work. He contrasts this lavish generosity of God's grace with the meritocracy that characterizes so many human relationships. He cut to the quick when he responded to the grumblers in 2015. Are you envious because I am generous? 
The Jesus way, in other words, is a way of grace and not merit. Status reversal instead of status reverence. Undeserved generosity rather than pay for services rendered. In the parallel reading from the lectionary this week, the story of Jonah amplifies this parable of Jesus. Jonah does for geography what Jesus did for economy. When God had compassion on the pagan Ninevites, Jonah complained, complained bitterly in words that echo the grumblers in the parable of Jesus. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah 4, verse 2. God's prophetic call had come to Jonah, telling him to go to the pagan Ninevites and preach a message of repentance. But he refused and fled 750 miles in the opposite direction. Nineveh was east of Palestine, whereas Tarshish was west, probably in southern Spain. It's easy to criticize another person's disobedience, even a flagrant disobedience like that of Jonah, at least until we know or experience their own situation. Consider what God asked Jonah to do. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, Israel's traditional enemy, an eventual conqueror. With a population of 120,000 people, some classical accounts say that it was the largest city in the world in its day. The text tells us that its pagan sinfulness was legendary, as was its cruelty. The French sociologist Jacques Ellul says it was the people in which, which scorched its enemies alive to decorate its walls and pyramids with their skins. God asked Jonah to go to this city and preach repentance. It was like asking a French person to go to Berlin to preach repentance in 1942. The task felt impossible, and so Jonah fled. Jonah was not just fleeing an unpleasant calling. He was, we read, fleeing from the Lord, a fact which he freely admitted to the sailors on board the ship. He then descended into a suicidal death wish. Remarkably enough, and here's a prophetic word of grace for us today, God did not desert Jonah to his disobedience or give him up to his own poor choices. Instead, Jonah 1.7 tells us that the Lord provided. The provision was a fish that swallowed, saved, and then vomited Jonah back on shore. Sometimes God's gracious provision does not even wait for us to turn around. He even takes a suicidal death wish like Jonah's and turns it into an occasion of grace. And so Jonah was saved. God's prophetic word came a second time to Jonah, and this time he obeyed. He traveled to Nineveh and preached to Israel's pagan conquerors. It took three days, and then the unthinkable happened. The city famed for cruelty and wickedness believed the message and repented. The king even proclaimed a national day of civic repentance. 
Nineveh, we read, despite its wickedness, cruelty, and enemy status, was, according to Jonah 3.3, a city important to God. And in 3.10, a city for which God had great compassion. And in 4.11, a city that attracted his tender concern. God did not desert Jonah to his own disobedience. This God pays a full day's pay to people who stood around all day doing nothing. And neither did he desert a pagan enemy like the city of Nineveh. Like the workers in the vineyard who bore the burden of the work in the heat of the day and grumbled about the boss's extravagant generosity, Jonah complained bitterly about God's lavish love to a sworn enemy. His disobedience to God's initial call was one thing, perhaps understandable due to the magnitude and improbability of the task. But there's something dark in this second failure. Why do we sometimes prefer misfortune for others, divine judgment rather than God's shalom? We know that in some sure and certain way, God loves all people equally. But the parable of the workers in the vineyard that demotes the first to last and elevates the last to first, along with Jonah who complained about God's love for Israel's enemy, they both remind us that he somehow has a special love for the least, for those whom we normally exclude, reject, and even hate. The geography of divine grace that embraces Nineveh and the economy of his love that pays a full day's wage for one hour of work confound our puny and parsimonious human metrics that complain about divine generosity instead of celebrating it. This week, I review a title called Test of Faith, Spiritual Journeys with Scientists. The editor is Ruth Bankovich, Eugene, Oregon, Width and Stock, 2010, 120 pages. This slender volume is one part of a larger group of resources produced by the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion in Cambridge, England, with funding from the John Templeton Foundation. Other resources include the DVD of the same title, Test of Faith, Does Science Threaten Belief in God? And then thirdly, a course with leader guides for small group discussions, also called a test of faith. This present book under review includes the personal stories of 10 scientists who are Christians, including four women, several of whom also appear in the DVD version. For further details, see testoffaith.com. There's a burgeoning literature about the relationship between science and religion. Several authors in this volume have written books on the subject. Francis Collins, for example, former head of the Human Genome Project, has a fine book called The Language of God. The British physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne has written 40 books.
I like this book because the chapters are short and simple. They're free of all scientific jargon and have very few footnotes. The editor has done a fine job of getting the authors to do something rare for scholars, which is to skip, for the most part, discussions about the theoretical relationship between science and religion, which discussions are very important and treated in many books. Instead, the scientists tell their personal stories about their religious backgrounds, their conversions, how they became interested in science, and how they integrate their faith, life, and work. The stories are inherently interesting and inspirational. I have a daughter who's a science major in college and was very happy to give her this book. I have no doubt that if she reads it, both her faith and her science will be strengthened. The title of the book is Test of Faith, Spiritual Journeys with Scientists. For film this week, we go to the country of Algeria. The title of the film is Outside the Law, from the year 2010. The personal, the political, and the historical clash in this dramatization of the Algerian fight for independence from France. The story is told through the experiences of three Algerian brothers, each of whom had radically different experiences after leaving Algeria, and who therefore engaged the liberation movement in different ways. To France, the FLN, the National Liberation Front, was a terrorist organization. To at least many Algerians, they were a liberation movement and political party. Some sympathetic French helped the FLN, whereas some Algerians enjoyed comfortable lives in France and resisted the movement. At one point, one of the brothers asks a French Secret Service agent what was different about France's resistance of the Germans and Algeria's resistance of the French. He says, you're on the wrong side now. The French occupied Algeria in 1925, then signed a peace agreement with the FLN in 1962 that granted independence. Liberation was successful, but as this film shows, many people on both sides paid deep personal costs. Outside the Law was an official selection at the Cannes Film Festival and was also nominated for Best Foreign Film. The movie is in Arabic and French, with English subtitles. Outside the Law. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver's numerous awards include the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. With over 30 books to her credit, the New York Times described her as far and away this country's best-selling poet. The title of the poem is The Summer Day. Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar 
out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and purely washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know how exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Mary Oliver, The Summer Day Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 18th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.